Good evening and very warm welcome to the Oxford Martin School uh, very distinguished lecture uh, by Gary Kasparov. It's a real pleasure to see so many of you here and I do apologize uh, to those that are outside and do please tell your friends uh, I'm sorry we could not find a venue big enough in Oxford uh, to take the over 880 people that wanted to come to hear Gary and it's an acclaim to you Gary uh, that you draw that sort of interest. Uh, it's a very special occasion for us, and we are videoing it, uh, so please also tell those that haven't been able to get in uh, that it should be on our website uh, on Monday, early next week, so they can see that. Gary uh, came to Oxford last November to engage in a debate that the Oxford Martin School hosted about innovation and about the question as to what will accelerate innovation and how do we make progress happen more quickly, particularly in the areas that are key to society. The Oxford Martin School exists in order to grapple with the biggest challenges of the 21st century. And what we aim to do is bring great people together to think about this. In Oxford, we have about 350 people now in our community in interdisciplinary teams thinking about that. But part of our purpose also is to bring extraordinary people to Oxford that can help with these insights, and Gary certainly fits that bill. What the debate at the Union stimulated was a discussion between Gary and myself about how can we further this. And Gary, together with a number of others that he'll tell us about, is working on a book on this topic. So what we're doing these days is holding a series of workshops and this lecture to further this discussion. We very much hope that Gary will keep coming back to Oxford over the coming years uh, to keep up this discussion. And so this is a part of a process, certainly not the end point. As many of you know, Gary is widely regarded as the best chess player ever in history and remains so to this day. He was the youngest chess champion at the age of 22 in history. Uh, he ruled supreme for a very long time and retired in 2005 to more actively engage in his other interests. In 1986, when Gary was already the world chess champion, he displayed uh, his innovation to me by bringing out a whole series of chess computers. And I've got a great picture of Gary in 1986 in his jumper, a young man, um, on the front of this. And I managed to just about beat him at level one and began to appreciate what extraordinary genius and inventiveness there was. And as he kept going on, he kept playing not only great players around the world, but also computers. And one of the computers uh, that he played, uh, and in the end drew against, first having won against, was doing three million positions per second in its calculations. And that gives one some sense of his mental capacity. Um, it is just a sort of extraordinary thing to get one's head around that people uh, are capable of this and of analyzing different positions and different options uh, at that speed of processing. In addition to being a chess player, uh, Gary has for a very long time been a political activist. He's recognized his power is not only on the board, but is also able to shift societies. And from 1990, when he was first involved in the opposition movements in Russia. He's remained active in the Russian Front uh, and in the other Russia party which he leads. 
I got very nervous uh, just before our Oxford Union debate to see on the news that he'd been arrested uh, in the Pussy Riot protest and beaten up, in fact, uh, in protesting for human rights in Russia, because I feared he wouldn't get uh, to our debate, as well, of course, fearing for his own personal safety. Um, but he, he's not, he's not um, nervous, so I'm sure he's nervous, but he's, he does not resist putting himself on the line and at risk uh, in order to further these causes. And in addition now, he's taken on what I think is a much more global challenge, uh, which is after his many, many books, over 20 books on chess, including his very interesting books on how life imitates chess, he's taken on the challenge of trying to think through how societies work and how we make accelerate innovation. So it's with enormous pleasure, uh, Gary, that I invite you to the podium to share your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here again. So um, the first, first time you invited me here could be a mistake. Now, <laughs> you agreed to bring me back so and to continue this very exciting debate. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, I was lucky to get my UK visa at the last minute because there are always formalities even for the ex-world champions. At one point, I was wondering whether only Russians that now can visit this country, those who are buying real estate and football teams. Um, so as um, Ian just briefly said, the, the debate on November 9 we had in Oxford was all about um, innovation, and moreover about the role that innovation played and still playing in, in, in all different aspects of our society, so political, financial, on business, and of course on the relations between different uh, groups uh, uh, of people and uh, uh, nations. Um, and uh, um, uh, today I'll try to present uh, my views and, and uh, just part of the work I've been doing together with Peter Thiel and Max Levchin uh, on the book, and uh, hopefully the book will appear rel relatively soon. So. Um, and uh, it's just the title of the speech is The Spirit of Innovations. Just let me make sure. Um, and uh, um, while recently I um, spent a lot of time in America, and it's uh, quite natural, we have been investigating the, uh, the progress in the United States as being the, for a long time a pioneer and a leading force in innovations. So I was quite confused to here that many Americans believe that the top UK product is Downtown Abbey. <laughs> uh, but of course, long before Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, and, and others, there were Charles Babbage, Ada Lovelace, and of course, Alan Turing. And no doubt that we couldn't have Amazon, Google, uh, Facebook, other great things without Tim Berners-Lee's World Wide Web. And uh, just let's make sure that I don't miss slides. 
Um, and uh, um, we all now, nowadays, work with computers. You know, just we have them at our desk, our dining room, bedroom, and of course in our pocket. So I'm probably one of the few people who um, actually play computers. So not the probably most, um, not greatest experience in my life, but um, it's, it was a very useful experience. And uh, um, um, as a matter of fact, you know, just going back to my visits to this country, the first time I played in the UK was in 1983. And I played a semi-final match against Viktor Korchner on my way to conquering the title. And I think that very few people in this room can remember the name of the company that sponsored this competition, which UK-based computer company in 1983 was a sponsor of the event, Acorn Computers. <laughs> Eight-bit machines. By the way, it was a shock, shocking experience for me. Because at that time, you know, it's the, the, the it was just one year before Macintosh. So it was just in the Soviet Union, nobody ever heard of this. So we all thought about computers being something huge. <laughs> and that was, oh, it was still big by modern standards. I guess my kids would not believe it's a computer. They think it's a dinosaur, you know, from, <laughs> from Newton's time. Uh, but it was a computer that could do a lot of great things. It could play games. So I remember that's, that's how I used it. And, uh, in 84, 85, you know, just I, I enjoyed it by pushing all the buttons and playing. I remember the game called Hopper, <laughs> a jumping frog. <laughs> At one point, I thought I was a great expert because, you know, no one in my, my native town of Baku, you know, had a computer, so I was the, the champion by definition. <laughs> <laughs> and then I visited my friend, a computer expert in Germany, and uh, I, I wanted to boast my ability to play this great game. And uh, you asked him about my result, and I said, okay, whatever the number was, 10,000. And he said, mm, it's not good, so in our family, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't uh, be a winner. I said, can you do that? He said, no, not me. Your wife? No, no, no. Your son? He was 10-year-old, Martin? He said, no, 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 no. And look at the, the youngest one, Thomas, who was three and a half. He said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember how in, in, in about five minutes, you know, my... My pride was totally, you know, destroyed <laughs> by the kid. <laughs> so that's, um, and um, 10 years later, I played um, a mm, Deep Blue, but as a matter of fact, first thing I played a computer uh, called uh, Deep Thought. It's just a, again, reminds, you know, certain elements of American politics. <laughs> But it was deep thought. It's, uh, it was the product of the guys from Carnegie Mellon University. Later, the product, this, this project was um, bought by IBM, and they just put it in, in the special, the parallel processors lab. And you know, it came out as, as, as a deep blue. So in 89, it was easy. Um, let's make sure that. Um, in 96, it's amazingly, people always remember you know, what happened in 97. So when I lost the match. So, but I have to remind them all the time that in 1996 I won the match. <laughs> so it's, uh, um, and um, you know, of course after winning in 96 in Philadelphia and losing in New York, so I wanted to play a rubber match, but you know, IBM 
decided to retire the computer. So, and, um, and it's, 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 it, it was not an accident, uh, you know, with, with this deep blue. It was not just, you know, one match we just played. It's the computer chess already picked up the steam, and uh, the, the man I just mentioned, my German friend, so he went on with his friends, and they came up with um, um, a, a chess base, a first database in chess. And again, this is very few can remember the name of the computer that was first used for, for chess database. Also starts start with A, Atari. <laughs> so it's just, you know, 20, 86, 27 years ago, but it just, it's so antiquated. That was a very sophisticated 16-bit computer <laughs> at that time. Yeah, so, and uh, um, I, I was really amazed by what this computer could do. So it's the first time we could have the games, not just only notes, but just first time. And I also remember buying my first uh, laptop, Compaq, in 1988. I think it was about five kilos. <laughs> That's, you can kill people with that. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was expensive, but it was unique. So I, again, I was so, so proud. And, um, and after this, playing the blue and, uh, you know, just uh, making this the story worldwide, you know, just when people talked about, you know, humanity, lost frontier or whatever it is, so which I couldn't defend. So um, um, I, yeah, I just recognized that, you know, these, a lot of great things could happen. And uh, one of the ideas I, I proposed after the match is just not to only play Mandel's machine, which I, I still believe could be a very important scientific and cultural and social experiment. Uh, also, it's getting more and more difficult for us to, to fight the computers. Um, but it's, it's just bringing them together. It's just about uh, looking for a most sophisticated form of making decisions, bringing together the uh, brute force of calculation of the machine and our creativity, creativity. So what I call advanced chess, man plus machine. So where you could actually benefit from machines being so fast and you know, seeing almost everything through, but you know, adding your, your own creativity as, 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 as a key factor for maximizing the effect of your, your uh, um, decisions. Um, also, what was quite amazing that you know, just when, you know, uh, after match, my match with Deep Blue, uh, many people believe that experiment was over, so it was very much on the opposite side from what was predicted by Alan Turing who actually thought that for a machine to perform well in chess, it would require to become some sort of artificial intelligence. Deep Blue was exactly the opposite. I mean, it had no intelligence. It was just parallel processors, 256 processors, you know, built in the, in the pyramid. It's brute force of calculation. And um, I, again, I think that, you know, chess could offer much more than just simply, you know, calculating lines, just to uh, imagine that Chess is literally a mathematically infinite game. So the, the, the number of moves stands for insane number of 10 power 45. So just hopefully, you know, not in the nearest future. When I say nearest future, I mean it's in, in millenniums. So we'll see machines playing E4 and declaring mate in 13,555 moves. Yeah. And um, just to wrap up the story of the blue, I just move to, to, the, to the subject of today's conversation. So I, um, as I mentioned, I wanted to play a rematch or the rubber match, so just to, to prove that you know, the human's still capable of, of beating the silicon bind. Uh, but again, Deep Blue has disappeared. At first I thought it was you know, directing lights in Philadelphia. No, it was wrong. So actually I found it 
10 years later. So it's doing sushi in, the, in JFK Airport, in JetBlue Terminal. I mean, I love sushi, but I never ate there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, let's keep it there, so I like the picture. Uh, actually, I used it in some of the IBM's lectures, so, and they all liked it also. Um, many people criticized me at that time that you know, playing, uh, playing computer, it was huge risk. Uh, so it's not only personal risk, but also the risk of humanity, because you know, many people took it very personal, you know, how come that you know, we are no longer you know, dominant brain force on the, on, on the planet. And um, I don't know why, probably it's because of my playing style. So I always you know, recognize that if you want to win, and moreover, if you want to make the difference, which was you know, sort of my motto, it's not about winning the game only, but also to opening new horizons, you have to take risk. And risk means you, know, you can fail. And this is, by the way, one of the fundamental issues we're going to discuss today, and that's very much in, in the core of, of, of our thesis in our book, is that um, we are, you know, we are growing as a risk of our society. So risk becomes sort of a, da a dangerous world. And uh, um, um, so we're looking for safety nets, and we are afraid of failing. And again, I failed many times. So no doubt that if I could you know, rewrite my, my own biography, I, I know many points where I just could, you know, could raise something or add a few letters here and there. Even a little comma can make a great deal of difference in your, in, your, in your biography. But you know, it is what it is. And um, uh, recently, just I wanted to understand the nature of, of this um, growing rejection of failure as inevitable part of success. And um, just, I didn't, you know, engram. And, uh, That's a, it's an example, yes. That's what you do, this, this is, it's, you go, it's Google Engram search, and you look for, you know, uh, different words used in years, so in titles. And you could see what happens, you know? So when, with time, with timeline, things change. And that's one is interesting. So, you can see three lines, and you can guess which one is blue line. One is invention, one is profit, and the blue line, you can guess, it's risk. And you see what's happened after 19, in the early 70s. It jumped, which means that we discovered risk. And we got scared of that. So we keep talking about it, which means, you know, we're trying to avoid it. Again, it's, this, it's very natural because, you know, it's, being afraid of failure is part of human nature. So we all are afraid of making wrong move, you know, making wrong prediction, and failing. But the fear of failure cannot prevent us from moving. And I think that's what has been happening. Because when we start in you know, a business, when we start something new, you know, we're always looking at risk reduction. And we tend to forget that risk, re reducing risk means reducing benefits. Or we just have to come up with some artificial forms of compensating lack of risk uh, with, with uh, other, other means. And um, 
Thinking about this, the, the, the overall development of, of um, human race and uh, technologies, of course. You know, I've been thinking about the way to present it in, in some sort of visual form. And uh, and that's what I had in mind. It's very natural that, you know, we de the development could be presented in the form of vertical and horizontal. And it's natural that you ca we cannot go vertical all the time. So the question is, for how long we can stay on the horizontal development without running a huge risk that the power of gravity will not let us change, change the mode of development. Now, of course, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably trying to exaggerate things a bit when I say the vertical, it's creation, it's new, it's experimental, and of course it's risky. It means growth and jobs, while horizontal means incremental, existing, it's imitation, but of course it's safe. It offers revenue, but it, it also brings debt. Because as I said, you know, if, we, if we're running out of these new great ideas, so we keep doing the same things, and uh, while there are many options in the globalization, offered by globalization, at certain point we we're um, running out of these new instruments to, to compensate for, uh, for the lack of creation and uh, 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 new and experimental things. Yeah, I mean, no doubt that you know, every breakthrough technology can be presented in the form of incremental changes. Agreed. But you know, it's just, as uh, Schumpeter said once, you know, you can add as many mail cars to, to, to train, you will not invent locomotive. So it's, it's again, following is the same line of Schumpeter, is creative destruction. You just have to make sure that certain things have been literally destroyed just to move forward. And we all understand that even if we come up with some great ideas, great new technologies, before these new ideas, before these new industries bring jobs, they destroy the existing industries. So you lose before you, uh, you, uh, you actually benefit, which is a natural process. And that's probably an explanation why things happen, big things happen during wars. Because during war, I mean, nobody, nobody can uh, be concerned about uh, paying very high price for, for innovations. You have to win the war. You have to come up with the best technologies. You have to make sacrifices. That's important. We have to make sacrifices. And uh, when we look, you know, at, 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 at the progress in the 20th century, we can see that the wars, both wars, and the, and the Cold War, which is also, you know, um, an existential threat to the free, free world from communism, created um, um, a public demand for excellence, for moving forward with new ideas, no matter what the cost. Um, and uh, I just wanted to have another, uh, just least, and again, it's, some may say it's exaggeration, it's maybe not you know, the perfect example of presenting you know, this, all these ideas, but again, I want to do it in, as a part of the big picture. And you know, that's the way I play chess, the way I try to analyze things, just always looking at the big picture and recognizing that what is the effect of your quiet move on the queen side, on the king side, 
developers. Um, so it's this, this time to travel, 200 miles. And we, we could see the, the development. And of course, you know, 1969, that's, a, that's that definitely a point which, you know, destroys the, uh, the natural, uh, natural cause of the, of the progress. Um, 1969, it was a year of American landing on the moon, also the year of the first ARPANET signal sent from UCLA to Stanford, but it was also a year of Concord. And by the way, Boeing 747. So it was a great year. Uh, and uh, uh, since 1969, we are traveling from A to B slower because Concord was decommissioned in 2003. Again, some may say this is not you know, a big argument. And uh, while we've been talking in the process of writing the book, we've been talking to uh, people from Wall Street, from the, from the Valley, Silicon Valley, from DC, from you know, business firms. So we have a bunch of arguments. And uh, definitely one of the arguments is that um, what's the point of flying faster from one, you know, from New York to LA or from London to New York? Uh, market is not ready to pay for that. It will just come later to the point, but let's, let's hear that. It's some people, you know, just they believe that, you know, we did it right when in late 60s we made a big decision. Actually, it was a really big decision. You know, whether we wanted to have faster planes or bigger and more comfortable. I mean, I can testify that modern planes are very comfortable. Yeah, we have better, much better seats. We have Wi-Fi, fuel efficiency, so it doesn't help with, 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 with uh, the prices ticket prices, but it's all there. But just think for a moment that the planes that we're flying today, it's the same generation, the same family as Boeing 747. All the Dreamliners, they are basically the same planes. Again, fuel efficiency, comfortable seats, but the same speed and the same structures. Uh, and when you look at the projections made by Airbus and Boeing for 2029, they have thousands of planes that are just, you know, already, you know, being sold uh, to different airlines. Which means that my grandchildren will be flying literally the same planes as my grandparents. I think there's something wrong with this. Again, I cannot prove that this is this, that's, that's the, that solves, you know, our debate, but I think there's something wrong with that, wasn't it? And um, let's look at the speed of information. And by the way, here there are no, there are no hiccups. It all grows up. It has been growing. So 1844, telegraph. So when we ended up now with, you know, some unimaginable numbers. So what is, you know, what is happening now with, the, uh, with, with this progress? Because um, the companies, they're naturally afraid of taking risk. And when we look at some great names, the symbols of innovations, take Apple. Apple is sitting today on 120 something billion dollars of cash with R&D under 2%. 
So how come? And you can just add, you know, names to the list. So why we do not see new great ideas? You know, Google probably has, you know, the highest IQ, average IQ, among any, any corporation in, in the Silicon Valley. There are 26,000 people working there. So can you just come up with, instantly, with a, a name of new inventions after the initial algorithm? So this, again, I want to open up a debate just to understand that this, this is something wrong. Maybe even fundamentally wrong. But we just have to address the issue. And we have to look back to understand that this progress you know, was quite amazing. And when we say, no, it's, it's very natural developments, and sometimes you know, we go vertical, then it go horizontal. But we are staying horizontal for too long. They're roughly, and again, it's very roughly because there's no proper scientific research, there are roughly 25 years of the period from the invention, or we may call inception of the idea, invention, to the, call it, mass market. Now, can you pick up something that was invented in mid-80s and now is in the mass market? Just don't say mobile phones or internet. So the foundation for the internet was made by Americans as, as a byproduct of space race. It's Defense Advanced Research Project Agency uh, in early 60s. In 1962, there was a fundamental scientific work on packet switching by Professor Leonard Kleinrock. In 1963, DARPA magazine described almost every element of modern internet, including Skype, voice over IP. And as I already mentioned, on October 29, 1969, the lab run by the same Professor Kleinrock sent a first signal from UCLA to Stanford. Yes, it was ARPANET. Yes, it was not you know, yet ready for mass production, but it was already, the foundation was there. And again, it was a byproduct. So it's just many things that happened over the 60s. They, you know, they, um, they were not even predicted. So it's, it's um, yeah, when Americans prepared for this, for, for the moon landing, so as, as JFK said in his, his, his famous speech, so there were many, there were probably, will require, require metals that not yet invented. So just recognizing that certain things happen as side effects, and that's probably the most important thing that we can, uh, we can learn from these, some say, projects that, uh, that had no uh, uh, real ground effect, so uh, effect on the ground, on Earth. Today, many people t tell us that financing space programs is just a waste of money. So what can we get there? So moon, it, it's a base on the moon or flying to Mars. And it's 1989, that was a year when American US Congress killed the last major initiative, space initiative. It was called Space Exploration Initiative, proposed by Bush 41. And it, it was, by the opinion of the Congress, too expensive. The cost of the program, 30-year program, which, as NASA hoped, would end with mission on Mars, manned mission on Mars, was $500 billion. It's about half what Mr. Bernanke prints every year. I think, again, it's very important. So when we say NASA was too expensive, yes, the overall budget of NASA over 
over 55 years is about $750 billion. It's a great deal of money, yes, correct. It's just a bit more than Pentagon spends every year now. And we own almost everything. So we just, all the technologies today, they are, as I said, already byproducts of this, of this space race. And um, while doing you know, lectures and public presentations, I always look at Wikipedia now. This, we all, always have to uh, benefit from the modern technologies and ability to collect information. And I always look for data history just to find out you know, something that is relevant for the day we meet and we talk. And uh, almost 80 years ago, exactly on that date, February 28, 1965, Wallace Carruthers, who worked at DuPont Experimental Labs, came up with a nylon. It's hard to imagine the importance of the, it was a revolution. And what's amazing, that it was not something that DuPont had in mind when they decided to pour tons of money into the experimental lab by a scientist um, who couldn't come up with a business plan. I don't think that today, carousers could, could attract a penny, neither from DuPont or from venture capital. And let's not forget, they did it at the time of the Great Depression. So for years, they have been doing, uh, they're financing something that had no immediate business effect. Ended up with nylon, and it just opened a brand new era. And uh, here is just the way it was described. No practical objective in mind. I think it's just, it will, you would be insane of, you know, of coming up with a proposal that has this kind of objective or lack of objective. But that's how world has changed. And again, it brings us back to the risk and a failure. So this is all this, all this combination. What are the chances of the great explorers to succeed? I remember once I, uh, I spoke at uh, University of Porto in Portugal, and it was an MBA group, and the name of the group was Magellan. And uh, it was three years ago, so at that time, people were less convinced that something was wrong with, with global economy and with our society, and uh, uh, they looked very skeptical. And I asked them, look, guys, you know, there's about 150 grown-ups. Um, are you sure that, you know, it's just you are willing today to finance a risk venture? Just imagine Fernando Magellan himself walks into the room and comes up with his plan. What are his chances of getting a penny out of you? The, your, your problem is that most likely your reaction, let's run a focus group. The problem is that in the beginning of the 16th century, every focus group will tell you the earth was flat. And uh, again, it's, um, it may not be you know, the right argument because you know, we are now we are far more educated. But at the same time, you know, it's, just, it's not about education. It's about us to believe in some certain fundamentals, the fundamentals of free market and capitalism. And uh, for centuries, we knew that the whole idea of credit as a part of, this, of the system was to finance something risky. And 
You can win, you can lose. So up to you to make all the difference. I think the Adam Smith would uh, be stunned to hear that in modern capitalism, the size of the corporation offers immunity against bankruptcy. I mean, too big to fail is, is a blasphemy for the free market. But that's, you know, that's something that happens all the time. And why? Because we want to preserve status quo. Because we're afraid that you know, if we move too far, things, you know, things can change. And, uh, and uh, it might be too much for us to, to digest. And um, some people say, oh, all we say about innovations and breakthrough innovations and these new technologies, yes, but we live in a world where all the easy things have been invented. Uh, we, picked up, we have picked up all low-hanging fruits. Low-hanging fruits. You're telling me that nuclear project was low-hanging fruit. It was not even ripe at the time when Einstein wrote the letter to President Roosevelt. Are you telling me that the Soviet Sputnik or Alan Turing computer or moon landing, they, they, those were low-hanging fruits? At his speech at Rice Stadium, JFK said that we choose to go to the moon and to do other things in this decade, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And they knew that you know, taking risk was, was inevitable. It's hard to imagine for modern politicians making hard decisions that were made in the past, where statesmen were ready to take, to take a challenge and just to sort of carry responsibility. And um, it's going back in planes, it's just the story I mentioned about this, our friend from the business world, who keeps telling me that I would not pay for this very, you know, one hour flight from New York to LA. Might be too expensive. Market wouldn't bear it. That's his reaction. And that's not even chicken and egg. That's a vicious circle. Actually, it's reversed order. Market cannot predict what's going to work or not. Market could make corrections. But expecting market to tell you what's right you know, and what's wrong, it just brings us to this, to this stalemate. I mean, I understand that the role of the market in, you know, in uh, evaluating the great ideas. And if you have 10 projects you know, with the new planes or whatever, these projects, nine, nine of them can fail. And that's natural. One will succeed, and that will be, that will be it. But trying to actually predict what's going to work and not, you know, brings up a situation where the most lucrative business in Silicon Valley might be working for iPad applications. Okay, iPad is a great innovation. And by the way, Steve Jobs never trusted focus groups. He believed he knew better. And, you know, he made a great little difference. Not, I wouldn't still call it a breakthrough innovation because the newest detail on, on iPad, if you just um, divide it into the elements, was invented in, in 1981. But it's a very important new tool, and I, I use it, it's very comfortable. 
And again, it's a result of a genius who didn't wait for market to indicate what was expected by the crowd. So he came up and he, he succeeded. Um, and uh, just as the book was mentioned here, um, here I was with Peter Thiel on number nine, we did this debate, and uh, a man who is working with me and who will be co-author of the book is Max Levchin, uh, who was behind PayPal, just literally invented it. Um, also the vice president at technology of Google, he was a chairman of the board of Yelp, and now a member of the board of Yahoo, so pretty good Silicon Valley credentials. And uh, we have been looking at this, the current, current progress, if you may call it the progress, and uh, we're not happy with that. And again, we understand that there's certain things you cannot break up instantly, because this, it's, um, it's very much part of our culture. So that's why we decided that we use technology and the debate about technology to look at all the implications. So we want to analyze the effect of what we believe is a slowdown technology to politics, to business, to finance, and to uh, social issues. And uh, as I already mentioned, you know, in, in the financial world, if you keep using credit to maintain your living standards, it's a recipe for the bubble. Because credit is risky by definition. So we are creating society where you know, um, credit is a sort of inevitable part of preserving status quo. And I think it's part of, again, as our fear to upset status quo. And it brings us to, 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 to sort of the end of this argument that we think that many problems we're facing today, they're part of, of uh, us getting more conservative, which is probably more natural. So the, this audience is young, so I, uh, but the world is ruled by baby boomers. And they want safety. They want social security. And by the way, you will pay for that. I mean, I'm not trying to incite hatred among generations, but that's a fact. You know, the debt, the growing debt means that one day someone will have to pick up, will have to pick up the bill. And it will be new generation. There's no, it's, it doesn't work other way. And I think that we, before we actually reach this point when we'll have to pay these old bills, we'd better understand the nature of certain mistakes or maybe not mistakes, maybe the, the, those decisions were inevitable. Because, you know, we, we are growing. The human race is quite young by the, by the Earth standards. But we didn't have enough information to actually understand the effect of aging generation of, of our um, demand to improve our living standards almost on a yearly basis. And it brings us back to, these, to the 60s. And I, this is something that I also wanted to show. It's, 
1969, again, the uh, moon landing. And what you see on the picture on the left is a lab, IBM lab. 3,500 IBMers worked at NASA. Now, it's a trivia, but it's just, I'm, I'm stunned to see that the people are amazed to learn that the entire computing power of NASA at that time was the size of your smartphone. The entire computing power of NASA. And that's, you know, um, that tells you whether, you know, things are more difficult today. That's a response to this um, popular argument that, oh, things are so complicated. They're so difficult. And, you know, you can't come up with the same inventions. Yes, it, it's more difficult. But don't tell me that the certain diseases today are more difficult to treat than tuberculosis or polio. And we have more power. And it depends very much you know, on our ability to use this power productively. So with this smartphone, with the power of this smartphone, you have a, you have a choice. You can throw a man to the moon and bring him back safely to, to, to Earth. Or you can keep throwing birds at pigs. I'm not sure I know the answers for the questions I raised. It's just all about, you know, opening up a debate. It's like, you know, call me a whistleblower. But looking back at the 60s, 50s and 60s, you know, I discovered certain things that are just very much part of our mentality, of, of just changing public mind. What we saw over these decades is just a little, uh, so, a disappearance of science fiction as a genre, a positive view of the future. So now what we're seeing is more of a dystopia of the terminators, of the threat, potential threat to our future. And it's, it's probably, you know, just it reflects that, you know, we, we are afraid, instinctively afraid to touch the progress. We see the negatives. There are negatives. No doubt, you know, just look at the history. So every first, every great invention most likely was used first for destruction. That's what happens. But you can't stop it, you know, un unless you're willing to pay the price for slowing down and uh, creating, these, creating these bubbles. Uh, in mid-60s, people had big dreams. In 1966 was the first Star Trek movie. The story was 1996, us flying to Alpha Centauri. In 1996, what we got? Credit default swaps. Instead of having more space engineers, we got financial engineers. No offense meant. But I'm not sure, you know, it creates the image of the future world we had in our dreams. I made a little experiment. I spoke to people who were grown up in, in mid-60s. Who, Americans, who could hear or who heard Martin Luther King? People who could feel the atmosphere of American society of that time. The society that was trying to land on the moon and also was deeply engaged in fighting for human rights. And I asked them a question. I said, look, if somebody at that time Made late 60s, would tell you that you could bet your money on one of two things, one of two things that would happen 
one of them would happen. Americans landing on Mars, or black president in the White House. And they said it would be no-brainer. 100 to 1, we would bet on Mars landing. It didn't happen. Why? Again, maybe it was inevitable. But the energy of the society moved in, in, in a different direction. It was very important, a absolutely. Segregation, emancipation. People wanted to fix social ills, and they succeeded. Barack Obama is a result of, of the society making impossible a reality. But there was a cost. So we wanted to eliminate the risk and just to be on the safe side. And now I think it's time to go back and just to analyze these things we did. Again, it's water on the bridge. It's done. We have plenty of experience. We can analyze it. And I think we should remember that it's, it's all possible. And the answer is inside of us. And that's why I hope this is, I can defend a title, new, new title for our book against all the publishers' demand. I want to call it, do you have a dream? Because we all must have a dream. And I believe that if we have a dream, and if we work hard towards the dream, it will happen. We already made huge progress improving human nature. And now it's time to, to open new horizons. So we have plenty of opportunities. Instead of going flat, we have a choice of going up to the space. We have a choice of exploring the oceans, going deep down. There are plenty of opportunities. And I believe it's for you to make this, this difference. And I'm sure that my grandchildren will not be flying the same planes as my grandparents. Thank you.